absolutely wild as Fern Gagne's all-star wrestling goes coast to coast and continent to continent. The greatest wrestlers in the world. He may be an apprentice carpenter, but I guarantee you he is a seasoned ring veteran. I've been hit with bar stools, bar rags, bar maids. I'm talking to you! They're scared that Hulkamania is still running wild. I got a big fat wife and nine kids at home, and I gotta feed them! And take a look at Jesse the Body in real life. Open your hand once if you would. You understand? <laughs> this is absolutely unbelievable. Totally, completely out of control. He's coming in over the top. Hey! Look out! And welcome into this week's edition of AWA Unleashed. We are the preeminent number one podcast dedicated to telling the stories and reliving the memories of the American Wrestling Association. My name is Chris Tubbs. If you're a fan of the podcast, you know the deal. Now, I'm going to hand it off to uh, Mick Karch and also Polish Joe Chupik. Boys, uh, I'm not going to waste a whole lot of time because I've already wasted 90 seconds. And if anybody's still here, I'll be amazed. (laughs) But you don't want to tune out because this is... Out of the almost 90 episodes that we've done, this might be one of my favorites. I'm looking forward to this one immensely. And for wrestling fans, just let me say this. You're going to introduce this individual, Mick. But as you guys know, he doesn't need an introduction. No, he certainly does not. But uh, having said that, it's my honor. Uh, to introduce him, uh, not only from his uh, his days in the AWA and the WWF and the NWA and everywhere else, but also the American Wrestling Federation, where I had an opportunity to uh, to work with him. Uh, one of the most famous and respected professional wrestlers, I don't even want to say of the modern era, Let, let's just say of all time. And uh, let's bring him in, our good friend Tito Santana. There he is. How you guys doing? Thank you so much for uh, having me on. And, uh, man, that makes me feel good. <laughs> well, you know, Tito, it's our pleasure. And, again, you know, you, when you talk about the respected wrestlers in the business, and not only from the fans, but from the peers, from the guys, um, I honestly don't know if I've ever heard anybody say a bad word about Tito Santana. And that's a shoot. Uh, you are – you're one hell of a respected individual, and it is our pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much. You know, I, I just uh, treated everybody the way I wanted to be treated, and uh, uh, without our fans, uh, none of us would be anybody. So uh, I, whenever I go to appearances, I like to give the fans, uh, you know, the well-deserved time, and, and, and I like, you know, I don't like to blow them off. Uh, they want to talk to me, and, and uh, I enjoy hearing their stories. Oh, that and and that's so refreshing because we've been to so many of these fan events where the guys don't even look up from the you know the picture they're signing and then they you know kind of herd them through like cattle. So that as long as the check cashes, then you know yeah we're we're kind of afterthought. So I yeah, yeah I I'm kind of with Mick as a fan. I've never heard anybody say a bad word about Tito Santana, and that is pretty that's pretty remarkable. Class is the simplest way to state it. Yeah, no question about it. And in this business, Tito, 
Man, that's uh, you're in rarefied air there, pal. I'll, I'll tell you yeah, that. It's, it's not, it wasn't an easy business, without a doubt. Well, well go ahead, Joe. I know you got the first question up on the on the team. Yeah, so Tito, in Minnesota, we've got Robbinsdale, Minnesota. That was the hotbed. But explain to us what was in the water at West Texas State. You had so many guys come through there. Can you list off some of the famous people that came out of West Texas State University? Well, the, the, the Funks, Terry and Dory, uh, Dusty Rhodes, Blackjack Mulligan, uh, Barry Windham, Manny Fernandez, uh, Bruce Brody, Stan Hansen, Bobby Duncombe, myself, uh, and I'm pretty sure I've uh, missed a couple, you know. Uh, I guess the reason was the fact that uh, the Funks were were stationed in or are from from Kenyon, Texas, and they also played football at West Texas State. So, yes, uh, a lot of great, great, uh, a lot of them were football players, also like myself. Boy, yeah, what, what a what a rogues gallery! Floor. I mean that 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 is something. Else. And look at that! Look at that young guy there, boy. Yeah, this is when I was with the BC Lions. Wow. How many years ago? Well, this was in 1976, so uh, 43, I would wow. say. Wow. And wow. you haven't aged a bit. Outside of the glasses, Tito, you're the same guy. No. Okay. no, no. <laughs> <laughs> when I roll out of bed, I know I'm not the same guy. <laughs> so was wrestling always kind of in your sights, Tito? Or like, how did you get connected with the, the professional wrestling business? Well, I forgot to mention one guy, and that was uh, Tully Blanchard. Uh, oh, sure. I, 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 you know, he was the, the quarterback at, at West Texas State, and so was the million-dollar man, Ted DiBiase. We played together. Uh, I, I wasn't a wrestling fan when, when I grew up, uh, but I met Tully's father, and, and uh, one day Tully tells me that uh, his father thinks that I can have a, a, a great career being a Mexican-American uh, in professional wrestling, and uh, he, he planted a seed. Uh, at the time, I wasn't interested because I had been, it was my junior year in college. I had been getting letters from the NFL that I was a prospect, uh, and, you know, football was my first love. Uh, when I found out, I, I went to Kansas City as a free agent. Uh, I found out that uh, it wasn't an easy way to make a living, and, and uh, I started thinking more uh, about giving uh, wrestling a shot, and the rest is history. So when you decided to make the jump, Tito, to uh, to wrestling, and you had mentioned uh, the Blanchard uh, clan, um, how exactly did you get involved? Was it through that group? Was it uh, another contact? How did you first get into the business? Well, I... I... When I got done with the BC Lions in uh, 1976, I came back to college. Uh, Tully Blanchard graduated uh, uh, mid-year, and we went back to San Antonio, Texas. I didn't even go home. I went to San Antonio, uh, and I started training a little bit with Tully, and uh, I refereed uh, a few matches because they own uh, South Texas, Southwest Texas uh, Wrestling. Uh, and then him and I drove on uh, the last day of uh, 
1976, and then my first day of uh, training in, in Tampa, Florida with Hiro Matsuda was in 1977, January 1st. I'll never forget that. Wow. That's, and that was going to be my next question, too, is, is about the, the training. And, it, boy, Hiro Matsuda doesn't get much much better than that. That's, uh, that's one hell of a way to get your, to get your feet wet. Yeah, he definitely had a reputation. Uh, I think uh, the fact that I uh, was recommended by, you know, the Funks, the the Blanchards, uh, 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 he he was a tough. I mean, it, 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 his training was tough, but you know, he was easy on me. Well, that's good. That, that that's a plus. So, what were when you first got into it, then Tito? I, was it what you had expected? Like, what kind of expectations did you have? And, I mean, what, what was it like on the road when you're just getting your feet wet? Well, I mean, coming from uh, professional wrestling, I was there as a free agent when we uh, worked in our contract. Uh, and I got a contract. And I, I was kind of, you know, professional football player, professional wrestling. I was expecting something similar and when that didn't happen and, and I start training and I'm not making any money. And then I have, uh, I ended up having four matches in Florida before I went to Atlanta. Uh, and I was spending more money than I was making, you know, in the matches. Uh, uh, Terry Funk happened to come into, he was a world champion, came into Tampa. Uh, and he called me into the to the dressing room because back then they used to separate the, the baby faces and the heels. And he asked me how I was liking it. You know, God bless his soul, Terry Funk, may he rest yeah. in peace. Uh, I He says, how do you like it? I said, well, I like it. I said, but, I, you know, I don't know if I can afford to keep doing this because I was paying for an apartment. Uh, I said, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to just, because I had signed a contract to go back to play for the BC Lions. I said, I think I'm just going to, uh, give it up and, and start training for football again and give it another shot next, uh, next year. And he said, no, don't just, just wait a minute. Uh, uh, let me talk to, uh, Eddie Graham. And, uh, that's what happened. You know, the next morning, Eddie Graham called me into his office and that's when I got my first, uh, match. And before you know it, I was on my way to Atlanta, Georgia. Wow. Fantastic. Fantastic. So, so I want to talk to you about this little name shuffle game when you first started. Um, you used the name Richard Blood, but that's Ricky Steamboat's real name. So how the heck did they, how did you come about to use Richard Blood when you first started in the biz? Well, the owner of, uh, of, uh, Georgia Championship Wrestling was Jim Barnett, and Ricky Steamboat had been in uh, in Georgia Championship Wrestling before he went to uh, North Carolina to, to work for the Crockets, and he went on to become a big big star uh, for the you know for the Crockets. So I guess Jim Barnett, feeling that he lost a big star that they should have kept him, he thought that he could replace. Ricky Steamboat with uh, the, the 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 fake Richard Blood, and uh, from what I understand, Jim Barnett flew to Charlotte to get permission from Ricky Steamboat for me to use uh, uh, the name Richard Blood. 
So that's wow. how I became Richard Blood. Wow. So speaking of this, I don't like to, because I'm not in the business, so I don't like to use the, you know, the insider terms. There was never any documentation that, you know, Ricky Steamboat ever worked as, uh, you know, as, as a villain. Did you ever work as a, as a bad guy or were you always, you know, the, the fan favorite? I, I was always a, I was always a baby face. Uh, I don't know if you remember when uh, Rick Martell and I split up in, in Strikeforce. Uh, I asked Vince, uh, Vince McMahon if I could, uh, if I could be the heel when we split up. And he said, no, no. Mm -hmm. He said, I got some big, still got some, a few plans for you, which he never did have any more plans. He just uh, kind of. Imagine that. Yeah. And, and I, and, and, you know, just speaking of the, of the, the strike force thing, I got to admit like at, at that, at that WrestleMania and one of my first like WWF shows that I went to was actually where you were supposed to wrestle Rick Martell and you were on your, your way to the ring. And he attacked you in the, you know, on your way. And I was so upset. Like as a kid, I was just like, how can you do that to Tito? I hate you. I hate you. And I was just like, oh man, I, I was so mad at Rick Martell. And I still am like to this day, I still can't forgive Rick Martell for, for not giving me that Rick Martell Tito Santana match that I wanted to see in person. I think that's what's missing in, in, in modern wrestling, you know, uh, People would get into the into the situations, you know, the stories back then, and uh, I guess they were, I don't know if they were more thought out or, or, or the minds behind this were were more prepared. You know, I think uh, what, what's going on now is uh, uh, Hollywood uh, writers are the ones that are writing, and you know, if they've never been in the ring. It's it's pretty hard to to create scenarios. Tito, I, what a great point that is. Yeah, and, and to me, and I've said this before on this podcast, as a wrestling fan, there doesn't seem to be more, an emotional connection with the guys that there was back in the day. I mean, when you, if the babyface was getting his ass kicked back in the day, uh, the fans were they were ready to riot. Now it, it, it's, it's such a, a television production that everybody really, hey, we're just watching the TV show and we're supposed to cheer here and we're supposed to cheer there. And the lines between babyface and heel are kind of blurred. So the storylines don't don't matter. I mean, you can't get a guy over as a massive babyface anymore because half the crowd doesn't like him. Yeah, I, I, I'm not a fan of, of uh, today's wrestling. I, I don't watch it. Uh... I happened to be in a show, in a live show. I didn't even know it was going to be a wrestling show. I thought it was an appearance uh, here in, in Jersey. And the the building held like 7,000 people. And they only had like half the building was full. And uh, pretty much 90% of the wrestlers, you know, weighed around 200, 210. They all, they all looked the same. And th that was the night, the, the night that uh, uh, Rhodes was introduced to, to the WWE. Okay. Uh, so I mean, back back in my in the day, I mean, there was a heel, and, and, and not too many fans wanted to step into the ring and, and challenge those heels. Uh, I mean, they were mean looking and big and tough, and and nowadays, you know, I, I think my, as myself, if I was on the side watching a match, I you know I wouldn't be afraid of uh, to go into the ring, you know, and challenge some of these guys.
I, I know exactly what you're saying, you know, and a lot of them, it's, it's cookie cutter. A lot of them look uh, so much the same and it looks like, yeah. like, like uh, swimmers or gymnasts or whatever. Well, yeah, uh, there, there's, there's no difference. Like you said, I mean, you know, I'm used to wrestlers, like everybody had their own look. They had their own personality. It's like, there was something that I could grab onto, whether I liked somebody or I hated somebody, like it got me attached to them. And I, I feel I feel detached from a lot of today's wrestling because there's no reason for me as a fan to invest my time and consequently my money. Well, you had guys like uh, Jerry Blackwell, for example. I mean, he was an overweight guy that, that could drop kick. Yeah. And, and, you know, most of these guys were, you know, even though they were huge, uh, uh, George the Animal Steel, and, and you know, you, you could just go on naming down the road huge guys that that uh that could eat you up you know uh and spit you out if, if they wanted to these were tough guys you know they were very athletic no question about it and you know i guess because we're an awa podcast we should start talking about the awa a little bit and you know kind of focus on that uh so as your career is progressing you come to the awa territory and Boy, it exploded. But but how did you get involved? How did you get hooked up with the AWA to begin with? Well, uh, when I left uh, New York, I had teamed up with Ivan Putsky in 1979, and we became the World Tech Team champion, Champions. We dropped the belts to uh, the Samoans, the Wild Samoans, and Vince McMahon Sr., you know, I, I kind of made him my, my whoever was going to be booking me. So every move that I met, met, made from there on, you know, I, I took his advice. So he asked me, where do you want to go? And Dino Bravo, uh, God bless his soul, happened to be there. And he had, you know, we kept in contact because we, we were friends. And he told me that there was a great territory. You could live a normal life. You know, everywhere else you were wrestling every day of the year. In, yeah. in, in Minnesota, you'd wrestle 200 days a, a year, and, you know, made pretty good money. So I told Vince, you know, uh, my first choice is uh, to go to the AWA. That That's great. And that actually leads to my next question, too, because you've done so much in the business in so many different territories and, and countries, for that matter. Your time in the AWA, how did that how does that rank, you know, in, in the list? If you had to say this is my favorite period of my career, whatever favorite territory, how does the AWA stack up? Well, not, not, not that it's my favorite territory, but I credit the AWA for me learning the business. Uh, I, I, I had uh, my first feud with Ednan LKC. God bless his soul, just passed away recently. Uh, every, you guys know, every guy that was there was a main eventer anywhere else. Oh. And, and the interviews uh, were unbelievable. And me and Gene Okerlund, you know, I wasn't experienced with, the, with interviews because I remember Med Doc Vashon used to say 90% uh, uh, of the draw is your interviews. That's where you sell your tickets. 10% is the work you do in the ring. And to listen to these guys, you know, do the interviews, I mean, and how they used to sell tickets, it was unbelievable. So I feel that that's the place that I learned the most. And when I went back to New York, 
I felt like I was polished. You know, I, I could do a, uh, I could compete with interviews with anybody. I could, uh, my work was, uh, I learned a lot, you know, uh, with, because I was working with top guys, you know, I was learning and guys were teaching you. And that, that's what we used to do. The older guys would teach the young guys. And, you know, it, it's pretty easy if you're an athlete uh, to learn when you're getting taught every night, every night, you know, they, they lead you like a baby in that ring. And, you know, uh, I was there for two years and, you know, I, I really learned a lot. Oh, you're muted, Chris. So I was working on some things uh, behind the scenes. Thank you for that. Otherwise, I mean, maybe my <laughs> wife, maybe my wife muted it for me. I don't know. Um, <laughs> so when, when you're there, Tito, and, you know, you mentioned all of these individuals were main eventers in, in other territories. Like, what was the atmosphere like amongst the talent? Was, was there like this competitiveness that everybody kind of wanted that top spot because everybody was main eventers? Or was everybody, it's kind of like all ships rise sort of, of situation where everybody's willing to help each other out? I think everybody was willing to help each other out. Everybody, you know, Vince didn't keep a big roster. Uh and everybody would have a little run and then you would uh, drop a little and, and somebody else would go up and, you know, everybody, uh, Vince, I mean, Vince Byrne was, was making the most out of everybody that he had because, you know, you'd wrestle in, in uh, Minneapolis or St. Paul, you know, where you had 15, 20,000 people and Vern had like maybe five matches. And, you know, uh, you'd have uh, uh, three matches and before intermission and two after intermission and, you know, everywhere else they had eight, nine, 10 matches. And, and you know, in the AWA five matches were, we were selling out, the, you know, not, you know, I was part of it, but they, they were selling out way before me with, with, with that scenario. Wow. So Tito, um, my question is going to be a two parter. So you were with the AWA during, I mean, it, it was hot from about 81 to 80, probably 80 to 83, was arguably the most successful period of the AWA. Part one of the question that I have is, the exodus started in, I believe it was May of 94. And that was Jesse, uh, Mean Gene, Bobby. 84? Uh, pardon? 84. 80, yeah, sorry. I'm, you said you said nine. I'm like, oh, it was way we have 84. My bad, my bad. And then uh, you know, Doctor D. David Schultz. So my question to you is, what you know, when, how, and when were you approached to go back to the WWF at the time? Well, I was, uh, I was uh, in in Atlanta. Uh, I went from, from the AWA to Atlanta. They, they, they promised me uh, they were going to make me a big international star. Ole Anderson was, was the booker. And, uh, well, another big screw job uh, that never happened. Uh, Ole never had any intentions before, excuse me, before I know it. I started getting booked in Louisiana. Bill Watts wanted to get me to Louisiana. Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff told me that the trips were very far, uh, always on the road, and the pay was not good. So I told Oli, I don't want to go to Louisiana. And before you know it, I get booked in Louisiana. 
and I get a great payday uh, for the period that I was there. And then I would come back to Atlanta. And Paul told me, you know, he really wants you bad. But once you're there, he's, you're going to get the screw job, I guarantee you. So uh, I kept telling him, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. Finally, I wanted to talk to uh, Bill Watts about coming in. And Bill Watts says, I'll talk to you uh, in Houston. And uh, I said, man, he didn't. He wanted it, he wanted me so bad. Now he doesn't even have time to talk to me. Uh, so I called Vince McMahon and I said, Vince, uh, I'm going to be talking to Bill Watts on Friday. I, I think I'll uh, I, I think I'm going to go to Louisiana. And Bill Watts says, uh, Yeah, uh, Bill Watts is a good man. So come Friday, I get there. Ernie Led tells me, Son, you're going to have to make the biggest decision of your life tonight. He says, uh, New York, Vince McMahon wants you really bad, and Bill Watts wants you really bad. So I felt like I was in control again. You know, it was a uh, a pretty depressing era that, that I, I kept going back and forth because I had a guarantee, only got rid of my guarantee in Georgia. So I, I was making good money in Louisiana, and Oli was, I think I was making like $300 a week uh, working for Oli in, in Atlanta. Uh, and... Uh, I called Vince uh, and I said, Vince, uh, this Tito, and like he didn't talk for a while. And I felt like it was uh, hours that he just was silent. And I, I was getting upset. And I said, don't tell me that Vince is on this gimmick work also. And I was getting, kind of getting upset. And I, I raised my voice a little bit. And I said, the reason I called you is because I was asked to call you. And he, and he says, Yep, it's time for you to come home. Uh, your starting date is uh, uh, May 10th, 1983. Uh, it was my first TV taping. The reason I remember that is because that was my birthday. So, uh, you know, I told my wife, we're going home because my wife was from New Jersey. Nice. So once you got to, so May 10th of 83. So that was before couple of years before the first WrestleMania, before uh, the WWF exploded, if you will. So you were there when all of the talent from all of the different territories started coming in. What was it like in the locker room or just for yourself? What did the, what did the talent think of the other territories? Did, did you see the direction that Vince McMahon Jr. wanted to take wrestling? And if so, did, did, you, did, did, did you think that there was going to be any competition? Or did, did, could you see what the WWF was going to become, what it is today, this huge multi-billion dollar conglomerate? Well, uh, uh... Vince Sr. came down with cancer and they had a meeting and he handed over the reins to, 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 Vin, to Vinny. We used to call him Vinny, now, now he's Vince. Uh, and he had a big meeting with all of us. Uh, and it was introduced to us very slowly, you know. Uh, it was happening, but only the, the inside, probably Pat Patterson, you know, the, eight, you know, the, the bookers knew really what was going on. But first it started out, you know, he, I figured he went and got the best Mexican, which was me. He went and got the best black, which, which was uh, J JYD. Uh, 
he went and got Hogan. He offered Hogan a a, a ten year guarantee, uh, and 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 he he uh, just kept getting talent and talent, and then before you know it, we're uh, we're going into Minnesota, we're going into Atlanta, we're going into you know, he's taking over all the big uh, cities. Uh, I, I I don't know if this is true, and I don't even I'm not gonna. It's a good source that I heard it from, but I heard that Vince would go in with Hulk and ask the the TV uh, producer or the the the, the president, uh, how much are you getting from uh, the, the AWA? Uh, uh, how much are you paying them? And he said, uh, we give them a thousand dollars a week. And he and Vince would say, how about if I give you a thousand and you put a better product? So it was like a no brainer, you know. Uh, Man. Yeah, I've heard that story as well uh, from from Vern and Greg back in the day. Um, so, yeah, just it's, stand so, yeah. it's so at, at that point, Tito, when we see all of the talent from these other territories are are going up to New York to the WWF. When did did Vince view the AWA as a threat anymore, or was it just kind of I'm going to take the talent and and I'm just going to I'm going to bleed this territory dry until there's nothing left. I mean, was, was there, was there any perception of what the AWA was at that point when you got to New York again? No, because, uh, when the takeover started, uh, all of a sudden, you know, we're going into Minneapolis, you know, and, and with, with all this talent, you know, with the, you know, a lot of talent and, you know, there's no way that uh, Vern could compete uh anymore you know greg tried to get us to go back uh but you know i was making more money than than uh, than i had ever made you know in my career so i mean there's no way that i was gonna go from a from a proven product that had treated me good to, to go back to to a product that let me go you know uh it it was a no-brainer you know uh everything was shifting and Vince was taking over. You know, there was a period where, you know, the boys didn't understand what was going on, but uh, Vince didn't allow any of the, the magazine writers to come into the dressing room. Right, right. So there was no WWF uh, articles on the magazines and the boys were getting, uh, you know, upset about that. And uh, all of a sudden, here comes WWF magazine. Yeah. And uh, I mean, he, the script, the, the the foresight that he had, I mean, I don't know who else was along with that, but uh, looking back, it was a uh, it was genius. Oh, it absolutely was, you know. And and there's always that age old argument, you know, did did Vern drop the ball? Did he not keep up with the times? I think I think you said it all when 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 WWF is coming back into Minneapolis and they're coming in with these guys that had all been stars here. They'd already been established here, and he literally took Vern's main event guys at the time, uh, Schultz and Hogan and Mean Gene and everybody. and Bobby Heenan. Oh, everybody, yeah. yeah. And and to me, when when Jim Brunzel left, I mean, of all people, when, when the, one of the high flyers leaves, I think, you know, to me, that kind of said, well, you know, there you go. You lost uh, you lost a Minnesota guy and, and – uh, game over yeah i agree you know it, it uh 
jumping Jim, you know, but, you know, he's a great guy. Uh, you know, I was totally surprised when all of a sudden he showed up and I was, I, I happened to be in the W, I was a very lucky man. I mean, I was in Minnesota in 1979, Hulk got there. Uh, we both went, uh, I went to the AWA, Hulk got there. From what I understand, uh, uh, the Rocky movie, uh, Rocky sent three letters and Hulk was the only one that answered it. And he went and became Rocky. They brought him in as a heel. You, 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 you were there, uh, Mick. You know, the, 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 the fans just weren't buying him as a heel, you know. So they had to get rid of his manager, uh, Valiant, and, uh, and uh, turn him into a babyface. And, you know, all of a sudden, you know, the territory starts selling out everywhere. So I was making money because I was there with Hulk. Hmm. Then I came back to New York, and here comes Hulk. <laughs> You know, became the champion, and you know, I was there for many, many years. So, uh, you know, I, I a lot of people not Hulk. You know, Hulk couldn't work like Tito Santana. Hulk worked like Hulk, mm -hmm. but uh, Hulk drew a lot of money. You know, I consider him the Elvis of uh, professional wrestling. So let the records show that wherever you were at, Hulk <laughs> had to follow. So really, Hulk Hogan was following Tito Santana. Let's make yeah. that perfectly clear. He knew where to go. <laughs> yeah. All right, we're gonna we're gonna uh, take a little different turn here, Tito, because uh, we want to talk about some of the guys that you worked with in the AWA. So we're gonna do kind of a a name association, and I will bring up uh, the name or names of some of the guys, and just you know, brief recollection of uh, of your time and your assessment of them, friendships, what have you. So. Uh, we're going to kick it off. We had mentioned Jim Brunzel. You talked about Greg Gagne. So talk about the high flyers a little bit, your impressions maybe of them as individuals or the tag team. Well, the high flyers, you know, Greg was the son of Vern Gagne. Yeah. And they had been there for many, many years. And you would hear a lot of people knocking, especially not, not so much Brunzel, but Greg, because he was so small and stuff. Well, I don't know if you remember when uh, Rick Martell and I had that feud with with the with the High Flyers. I sure do. And and when when I ended up working with uh, Greg, I, I found out I found that Greg to me had one of the better minds in, in, the, in the business in the ring. So I figured, you know, this guy deserves what he gets. You know, uh, he doesn't deserve the the negativity that the boys were talking about. Of course, you know, big guys that had to put him over, you know, <laughs> the father was the owner of the territory, but could the guy work? He could work any, outwork anybody in the ring. There's no doubt in my mind. I mean, I learned a lot from him. You know, you, you had mentioned uh, you and Martel against the Flyers. And, and I got to say, as a fan, watching the, the two teams in St. Paul, one of the greatest matches I've seen. I mean, it was just... From top to bottom, it had everything and just just stellar. And we used to go. I don't know if you remember. We there, there was a feud that lasted for a while. We we had our matches, and we we were able to keep the fans on their feet. You know, throughout. I think the fans were looking forward for us to beat them. They wanted the, they wanted me and, <laughs> me and Rick to, to, which I think would have been a great thing because we we could have kept on you know working with those guys with with the with, with them chasing us but uh 
no, I mean, the fans really bought into, you know, Rick Martel and Tito Santana and, you know, the high flyers were, were already established. Let's move on to another team that was quite established uh, back then, and that is the East-West Connection, Ventura and Adonis. I mean, we know who the, the wrestler of the two was. We know who the, the talker of the two was. But uh, your impressions of them? Well, it, it was always uh, it was always a pleasure uh, stepping into the ring with those guys. Uh, I, I really enjoyed working with uh, with uh, Jesse. I mean, because Jesse could get heat without much work in the ring. You know, just let him do his his thing. Uh, with Adrian, Adrian was a hard worker. You know, Adrian was very talented. He was a hard worker and. and uh, uh, great combination together, you know. Uh, God bless his soul. He, I believe that he went too young. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. And and you're right, Jesse. You know, all Jesse had to do was appear. He didn't even have to get in the ring, and he had he had heat. Uh, let's talk about a man that you had mentioned earlier. Uh, to me, one of the underrated guys, but as a as a heel, as a baby face. Uh, later on in his career, Jerry Blackwell. Well, I remember when I got there, and you know he wasn't uh, he wasn't a hot item when I got there, right? But and, and he was getting beat, you know, in the middle of the ring, you know, doing jobs on TV. Doing I couldn't understand this, and, and he would come out on his interviews and say, "Still undefeated, still undefeated." <laughs> You know, and, and and people buy into that, and before you know it, he's the hottest baby face and the hottest heel in, in the territory. I mean, this guy was hot for, for years there. He was uh, just an amazing, amazing athlete, and you know, um, and a good talker, too. Oh, yeah, I mean, that's absolutely, and uh, God bless him, anyway. Moving on. Here's a guy that I'm quite familiar with that I know you are as well, and that is Mr. Bockwinkle. Mr. Bockwinkle, to me, what a look he had. Handsome, heel, good-looking athlete. Uh, and, I mean, I had my first hour uh, uh, match with Nick Bockwinkle in Denver, Colorado, if you can imagine. You know the altitude, oh. and and they 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 warned me about Nick. They said uh, he likes to lay on you and tire you out, and sure enough, he, he did. But uh, he carried me for an hour. It was my first match, and and uh, you know he was a machine. He, he was a he was a great worker. He knew how to put his opponents over in the mic and in the ring, uh, and and he maintained the belt. I mean. Uh, he reminded me of Tarzan. You know, he he was a what a specimen he was. Yeah, he was he was incredible. And you know, and I, I go back to thinking even as late as 1986 when he's going to a 60 minute Broadway with Kurt Hennig in Las Vegas, and Nick was I think 52, 53 years old at the time. And uh, you know, Kurt says you know the guy blew me up. You know, halfway halfway through the match, you know. My tongue's hanging out, and, and, you know, Nick is, come on, come on, kid. So, uh, yeah, extraordinary athlete, and I appreciate uh, I appreciate knowing that you guys went to those Hour Broadways and, and uh, legendary. 
Uh, continuing on, we talked about a guy that you are more than familiar with, and that is Rick Martell. Rick Martell was, uh, I mean, the ideal baby face uh, in the ring. Uh, as you know, I guess having that uh, Canadian uh, French accent, he wasn't one of the greatest talkers in the world, but uh, he was a, a great worker and he was a great partner. And, uh, and you know, when, when, when him and I got teamed up at Strikeforce and then they turned him in into the model, and, and I mean, he did an unbelievable job uh, as the model. You know, that, that, was, that was the man, you know. Uh, he got over like a million dollars, you know, I guess turning against me was it was very appropriate and uh he went on you know to very do very good things i just wish that him and i would have had a longer feud in the in the wwf absolutely absolutely great great stuff and you know my impression of martel was always poor rick in in the scheme of things in the awa as a heavyweight champion you know in a different era he might have been just gold but unfortunately he had to follow, uh, you know, in the footsteps of guys like Hogan and, and et cetera. And the AWA was starting their downhill decline a little bit. So I don't think he got over as champion as as best as he could have. But still, what an amazing guy. Yes, he was. We're moving on. And uh, legendary is all I can say about this guy. And so many people have said that, He's the greatest overall wrestling talent in history, and that's Bobby Heenan. And everybody has Bobby Heenan stories, and I know uh, you worked with Bobby incessantly everywhere. Talk about the brain. Well, the brain was was a master, you know, uh, with what he had to offer as far as his body goes. He could go in there and, and he could work with anybody. It doesn't make any difference. You know, he was a big coward, and but he would get his shots in there, and and, and he would hide behind whoever, uh, and and nobody could out talk out talk this guy. I mean, he was unbelievable. Uh, the way he talked about me in the interviews, you know, did nothing but help me. Right. And the same thing with Jesse the Body. You know, the, the, the heels knew how to get baby faces over with with, with the comments. I don't think nowadays they'd be allowed to to use the language that they used back then, but uh, he was uh, he was one of the best, you know, uh, in, as a ring wrestler and as and as, and as a manager. You said it all, and 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 I remember Nick would always say if if he and Ray Stevens were booked for a territory or or a show somewhere, and one of them could not make it, and they put Bobby Heenan in the place. Uh, the match was probably better than it would have been. So, uh, I mean, what an extraordinary talker. And I remember those interviews where he was he was uh, putting the heat on you and uh, a million bucks worth a million dollars. What a, what a guy. Yeah, he could do it with everybody, though. I mean, he, yeah. he, uh, he would pick, uh, you know, he was one of the few gifted guys. You know, I, I put him up there probably even – Better than uh, God! All of a sudden, my my mind went blank. Uh, Piper, 
Oh, yes. You know, there's another comparison right there. I mean, these guys just had the gift. Yeah, it's uh, sad that they're no longer with us, but uh, in, in wrestling history, uh, man, they, they carved a niche never to be equal. Uh, speaking of guys like that, you talked about him a little bit and a guy that would get knocked for, you know, what he could do in the ring. But in terms of the money that he drew, um, Hulk Hogan. Well, I mean, Hulk Hogan, a lot of people, like I said, uh, knock him and compare him to, to other guys. Uh, you know, the rock, the era of the rock, Stone Cold Steve Austin, you know, uh, the WWE was on fire, but uh, I think Hogan was uh, was the guy that made it all possible. You know, uh, he just happened to be there at the right time with with, with coming in and, and having everything you know that you could possibly need. You know, right. uh, he, he's the man. You know, as far as I'm concerned, he's still the man. We're we're going to talk about Vern in just a second, but in retrospect, so many people say, oh, if Vern would have held on to Hogan, the AWA would still be in business and blah, blah, blah. Was there any way at that time, in your estimation, considering that the what the vision was that Vince had for the national expansion cable TV, was there any way Vern was going to hold on to Hulk Hogan? Well, the problem there, from what I've heard, was Hogan all of a sudden became a big star in Japan also. And Vern Gagne wanted a percentage of what he was making in Japan, and Hogan wasn't willing to give up that percentage. So then Vince McMahon came and offered him, a, made him an offer, and Hogan said, uh, he said to me that if Hogan, if uh, Vern had given him, you know, let him, allowed him to keep the, the money he was making in Japan, he loved it in Minnesota. He loved having a normal life because we had normal lives there. You know, nowhere else did you have a normal life. That's really something because it, I think this is the first time I've heard. I, I knew about the Japanese money deal, but this is really the first time that I've heard, you know, that Hogan had Vern been a little more flexible and, you know, not so steadfast on the on the uh, royalties from Japan that, that he would have stayed there. That is... That's really something. Yeah. Well, okay. So let's let's project that. Let's say Hogan stays in the AWA, but Vince continues on this expansion. Does it still happen? Does does the success of the WWF still take place? Maybe with a Piper on top or somebody like that, or was it all Hogan? No, I, I think the success would would, would have still happened because there was so many so many good workers. And, and, and uh, whoever Vince chose, uh, the way he promoted you, I, I think Vince was going to get you over. And I think that Vince would have made sure that Hogan didn't have any anybody valuable enough to carry the load to work with Hogan in, in the AWA. You know, uh, it, I don't know if it would have been a little harder, but uh, I think Vince was going to make it work no matter what. You know, he... he he had so much talent to choose from that he would have made it work with, with anybody that he would have chosen. Well, and he certainly rolled the dice on WrestleMania, you know, and uh, we see how that played out. And, of course, your match with uh, 
with the executioner, Playboy Buddy Rose. Uh, you, you've got the distinction, the, the, the first ever WrestleMania match. Just real quickly, before we move on to the, the last couple of names here, talk about Buddy Rose a little bit in, in your interaction with him. Well, Buddy Rose was was one of a kind. He was another guy that was pretty big that that uh, moved pretty pretty good in the ring. Uh, unfortunately, again, he was one of the other guys that, that went so young. Uh, I, I worked with him the first match at WrestleMania, which you know, at the time, uh, uh, Valentine and I had the hottest feud in the WWF. We were we were selling out big arenas. You know that feud that me and Valentine had, you know, was over like a million dollars. And I was in the opening match, you know, I never realized how important it was to be in the opening match until later on. But I was pretty upset. It wasn't until right before I went through the curtains that Vince came up to me and said, uh, you know, the, the reason you're on the first match is because we need for you to set the tempo. We need for you to get the people off their butts. And, and uh, that made it more important for me uh and i appreciated you know him coming up to me and, and, and let me know before i went through the curtains and you know my attitude instantly changed before i stepped through those curtains and, and i went in there and wanted to have the best match that i could have with, with buddy Rhodes, which uh, you know talk about talent you know he was very talented he he had had a nice run in the wwf before you know before WrestleMania one, and he came back, uh, I guess, to do do us a favor, do me a favor. Uh, and, you know, and it's it's history. You know, Tito Santana was in the first match ever at a WrestleMania, so that's that's good stuff there. Um, real quickly, let's talk about the AWA boss, Vern Gagne. Does Vern get a bad rap in the scheme of things? I know the other promoters kind of fell by the wayside once Vince got rolling. Uh, what's your impression working for Vern and then looking ahead? Was there anything he could do to stop the stop the avalanche? Well, I don't I don't think there was anything he could do uh, the way he ran his territory. I mean, uh, and it was a great territory. Like I said, we live like human beings. Uh, he, he definitely knew what he was doing. At the moment, I thought there was a lot of other promoters like Vern and, and Bill Watts and uh, the guy in Houston. Uh, I just couldn't understand how they couldn't get together and, and go up against Vince. But they were they were they were they had so many egos. They they were wor worried about themselves. You know, they all thought they could do it, and they realized that they couldn't. Before you know it, they were done. Uh, I don't know what Vern could have done, you know, as, as good as he was, as good as all these guys were, uh, uh, Vince beat him. Yeah, and I've heard so many times Vince just, like you said, watch the infighting, watch the egos. You know, the guys are sniping at each other, and, you know, when they tried to work together, that didn't work out because which of our guys is going to get put over on this show and who's made of inning and and Vince just watched you know the the village burn you know and and uh and went from there uh last guy that I want to talk about and I saved him specifically because arguably this is the one that that got you on the map in the AWA and that's uh, our good friend Adnan LKC who we just lost just literally about a week ago 
that infamous incident on television uh, with the with the dancing girl where, uh, you know, she got a little too close to Tito Santana and uh, Adnan roughed the girl up a little bit. Tito doesn't like it and gets a sword from Adnan. Uh, talk about the Sheik. Well, th that was uh, that was the first uh, feud that I was ever involved, and and uh, you know that was the first time that I could really dig in to my interviews, and 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 and, and talk from my heart when I, when I would do the interviews, you know, because you know you had to make pretend that, that it was real life, you know, the attack that the way he treated her, the way he attacked me, what he did to me at the end. And it was in the summer, and, 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 you know, I wasn't too happy that the feud was in the summer, although we ended up drawing some pretty decent money for, uh, for the time of the year there in, in uh, Minnesota. And, and just the experience that I got from uh, having a return match and, you know, uh, listening to his interviews and then me co coming back, you know, that, that's how the guys used to do it. You know, you'd feed up each other's interviews. Uh, it was a, a, a great time. I mean, he was a lot more experienced than I was. So he he uh, he kind of led me like a baby in, in the ring, and 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 I was uh, so grateful forever. What a guy! Yeah, very very sad at his loss. And uh, um, I didn't again, realize he was as old as he was. I mean, he, he oh, was yeah. pretty good for his age. Yeah, and and it, it's interesting too. You mentioned you know Adnan's experience. You know he mm -hmm. had been in the business twenty years before you guys are working together. Uh, so that that really speaks volumes. That uh, yeah. So that I I, I appreciate that uh, that look back at the AWA talent. Mm -hmm. I know uh, Chris, you've got to wrap up here. Yeah, uh, we just got a couple minutes left here, Tito. So we know you as you know the the wrestler and and you know somebody that represents yourself well in terms of, of that business, but after wrestling, where did life take you? Like when you're done with the professional, your, your in-ring career, what was next for Tito Santana? I was lucky that I had a, a teaching degree. I had a, a double degree. I had a physical education and, and, and a Spanish. I did physical education for four years. And then I did 21 years of Spanish and I just retired uh, on June the 15th. And let me tell you, it is so nice not to have to get up at 5.30 in the morning, you know. Uh, it's, uh, I, I had been looking forward. And the reason I wanted 25 years is because of my health benefits. Uh, and, you know, that was the best thing I ever did. You know, I, I have a great pension. I, good so I waited till I was 70 for my Social Security. And uh, uh, my wife and I sit outside on the, on the deck and, you know, talk about this and, we have a glass of wine, and, and we're very blessed. Tito, I got to ask you. So Baron Von Roski, school teacher as well, had actually applied to become a teacher, but they didn't allow him the position because they were afraid if he got mad at the student that Jim Roski would become Baron Von Roski. Now, you didn't have the same, you know, in-ring personality as Baron, but I got to ask you, what was it, what, what were the other teachers and the students, you know, who found out and knew that you were a professional wrestler? How did they initially interact with you? Well, a lot of them were wrestling fans, you know. Uh, I remember the, the, the principal that hired me, uh, 
uh, in the middle school to, to be a Spanish teacher. He offered me a position uh, to, to, to be the wrestling coach. And I said, uh, he asked me if I wanted to be a wrestling coach. And I said, sure, I can I, I can teach the kids how to go like this. You know, like, <laughs> like COVID, and he started laughing. Uh, so uh, then uh, he asked me, what about basketball? And, and I said, uh, yeah, I, I was a good basketball player in high school. I said, and I, and I ended up coaching basketball for 15 years. Uh, I, I'm happy to say that we had two undefeated seasons, uh, and uh, we ended up doing very well. And I used to tell my wife, it's not that I'm a good coach, is that uh, I'm a good motivator. The, the, the kids would play their guts out for me. Uh, and uh, I only had one losing season in 15 years, but uh, 15 years was enough. And that is that is so great, and I just love it. You know, <laughs> I can be a wrestling coach too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's fabulous, uh, Tito. I, you know, we're gonna wrap things up here, but first of all, I've known you for a long time. You know, we had that experience in the AWF with Paul Alperstein and so on and so forth. But to have you on the show, and you know, last time I saw you here in the Twin Cities, you reminded me. Uh, that we had reached out to you to be on the podcast, and I can't thank you enough. Um, you are a consummate professional. I said at the beginning, and it's not, you know, just, just uh, it's a shoot. Everybody that I've talked to in the business over the years speaks so highly of Tito Santana. Thank you so much for that, Mick. And, and you know, uh, I will always uh, cherish our, our, our friendship because uh, you were always – you always treated me uh, with a lot of respect uh, yourself and, and uh, we always had a good working relationship and, and uh, I did feel bad when, when I first, you know, there was a time when I was just very busy, you know, teaching and, and, uh, and still doing appearances on the weekends and, and taking care of my, uh, I, 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 like, I enjoy working on my yard outside. I take care of my yard and uh, take care of home. And, and uh, you know, I just had to find, a, a place where, you know, I, I had the time to do it, you know, and I, I kind of felt bad mm -hmm. because to say no to you kind of, kind of hurt me, but uh, we got it done. <laughs> You're the man, Tito. We love you. Uh, continued success. And on behalf of the crew, thank you so much. We're honored to have you yes. on the show. Thank you. Thank you, Tito. Thank you, Tito. Joe, Chris, thank you guys. Enjoy. You guys are true professionals. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. Thank you much. <laughs> Thank you, Tito. All right. There he is. Uh, let's give a quick shout out, uh, guys. Uh, let's go ahead. And uh, you first, Mick. Mark Peterson, photographer extraordinaire for the last 30, 40 years. Uh, saw him in Las Vegas at Cauliflower. Great friend of mine. Hello to Mark. All right. My you shout out goes to Pat Markson Saba. Pat was the accountant in the AWA when I was, uh, when the office was still open. No, she listens to the show. So I just want to say, hi, Pat. And uh, I'm going to go to uh, John Coco 5199 on YouTube for uh, always supporting us. If you haven't done it on YouTube, subscribe. It helps us out a lot. So uh, we get about 30 seconds here, guys. We're going to take it home. And that was a, that was a great interview. That was great. Loved it. Tito's one of my favorite guys in the world. And uh, what you saw today and heard is what is the real Tito Santana. Something that the world needs more of, and that is class.